This is the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast. The podcast that uncovers stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. We are your hosts, Paul Barnett and James Lee. According to an article published on njspotlight.com, informed by a recent report from the Center for Diversity and Equality in Education, quote, Despite efforts to encourage integration, New Jersey's public school system continues to be among the most segregated in the nation. New Jersey's schools are both more segregated and more diverse than they were five years ago, end quote. At the upcoming Greater New Jersey United Methodist Annual Conference, legislation will go before the voting body asking whether we as United Methodists want to sign on a lawsuit produced by the Coalition for Diverse and Inclusive Schools to desegregate schools in New Jersey. Today on the podcast, we sit down with former Justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court, the Honorable Gary Stein, who helped coordinate this lawsuit, and Bishop of the United Methodists of Greater New Jersey, John Scholl. Justice Stein, Bishop Scholl, thank you for coming on the podcast. It is an honor to be with you both. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, it's wonderful to be here. Justice Stein, the first question is for you. How is it that New Jersey, one of the most diverse states in the nation, has one of the most segregated school systems in the country? Well, that's a great question. Back before 1954, all of the southern states, I think without exception, below the Mason-Dixon line, had statutes that prohibited black children and white children from attending public schools together. Uh, The northern states, like New Jersey, did not have statutes like that. So in 1954, on May 17th, as a matter of fact, Brown against the Board of Education held unconstitutional the laws in those southern states that mandated segregation by law. But the northern states, who were not affected by the Supreme Court's decision in Brown, simply went about their business and organized their school systems. And most of the northern states, like New Jersey, did it the same way. Uh, We have a law in New Jersey that says every young person ages 5 to 18 is entitled to a free public education, provided that person attends school in the municipality in which they live. So that means that if a municipality like my old hometown of Irvington, New Jersey, right outside of Newark, has housing segregation, so too are the schools, not by law, but because of where people live. And so as we developed as a state, the suburban communities in New Jersey, almost without exception, adopted zoning laws that I would describe and that my court held were exclusionary in that they imposed large lot size requirements that were unaffordable for poor black and Latino families. It happened very uniformly that the suburban communities were occupied by wealthier white families with the result that the black and Latino families who were in a lower income bracket wound up in the cities. Now, it's my belief that once the state recognized that this was happening, the state should have acted decades ago and said, wait a minute, we don't want our schools to be segregated, nor should they have wanted their cities to be segregated. Justice Stein, when you say 
desegregation, what is it that you mean? What I really mean is to organize our school system in a way that will encourage a far more diversified system of schools where black and Latino children that are below the poverty level will attend schools with children of white families and Asian families uh, that are perhaps uh, of a different uh, economic status and will get the benefit of going to a school where there are peers with higher aspirations. And so for a white child going to school in a school district that is predominantly white, that child is also disadvantaged by not having the opportunity to engage in academics, athletic activities, intercurricular activities with children from different backgrounds. They're not going to have the advantage of learning at a young age how to interact with people from backgrounds different from their own. Bishop, same question to you. Um, <clears throat> when, when you say and when you think desegregation from a faith perspective, what do you mean? Well, first, I really want to pick up with what Justice Stein has just said about how this benefits all students. And I can talk about that personally. I went to an integrated high school. And for me, that was an important experience that I learned a whole lot about myself. I learned a whole lot about people of other races. And, you know, from that experience, it really helped to provide a grounding for me about how I would live and what my commitments would be long term. So, you know, for the United Methodist Church, you know, let's just be honest that worship service on Sunday mornings is one of the most segregated hours in, in our nation. And uh, we continue to work at that here in greater New Jersey. We have 150 congregations that are multicultural congregations. We have um, uh, 100 uh, cross-racial appointments. So we continue to work to diversify our congregations, uh, diversify our leadership. And what we find is that that actually is more reflective of the kingdom of God. You know, when, when it talks about in the scriptures, the kingdom of God, it talks about all kinds of people, all different types of people coming together, not just different races, but ages, uh, different people with, uh, people with different experiences. And so the kingdom of God is about all of us. And, you know, as we talk about in the church, we ought to begin to experience that now. So for United Methodist, our Wesleyan theology, our Wesleyan history is all about um, connecting with people. Yes, we've had some uh, places along the way where we have not done well and even have had our own racist policies as a church and that there continues to be racism in the church. Um, but that should not stop us from working on an important uh, matter like this in the state of New Jersey. So for United Methodist in, in Greater New Jersey, this is not only about working on this important concern, but it is also about uh, us continuing to work on ourselves and continue to develop who we are in the kingdom of God. Amen. Justice Stein, how did this first come to your attention and, and what moved you to uh, help coordinate in drafting a, a lawsuit? Well, it's there's several answers. Let me start with the fact that I graduated Irvington High School in 1950 at a time when Irvington was almost, if not entirely, white. 
And I left Irvington to go to a school in the South in Durham, North Carolina called Duke. <laughs> and no, nobody warned me before I got there in 1950 that in Durham, North Carolina, black people uh, had to ride in the back of the bus. They had to use separate bathrooms. They couldn't drink from the same water fountains as white. And most painfully for me, I saw, and it was just the most shocking sight, I saw school buses carrying only black children to black public schools. Today, Durham, North Carolina is less segregated than Irvington, New Jersey. I left the court in 2002, and I've tried to keep current about education in New Jersey in the intervening years, and I came to understand more and more that the problem was rooted in the fact that we organize our schools and segregate black and Latino children, not only by race, ethnicity, but also by poverty. And so in the past two years, working with colleagues in education, uh, members of the clergy, members of the business community and the nonprofit community, we put together this coalition and made up our mind that we were going to push the state, not in a hostile way, but as I like to phrase it, we're going to encourage the state to take care of its unfinished business of organizing its schools in a way that does not segregate children by race and class. Wonderful. Thank you, Justice Stein. Uh, Bishop, so how did the United Methodists of Greater New Jersey get involved? Well, that's a great question. Uh, uh, Justice Stein and I served on a board together, uh, Drew University Board. I asked him uh, as we were waiting for the next session to start, tell me what keeps you busy these days? And he began <laughs> to talk about the work uh, that he was uh, working on to uh, begin to integrate the schools more here in, in New Jersey. And, you know, I said, that's really an important issue for us as United Methodist. Tell me more about that. I want to learn more about what you're doing. We struck up a great conversation, and then I invited Justice Stein to our annual conference session and asked him to make a presentation so people, United Methodists, would better understand that. And then the coalition formed, and I was asked to be a part of the board. I asked if it would be helpful and if it would be all right if the United Methodist Church of Greater New Jersey would also sign on to be a plaintiff. And I was delighted that uh, the legal team really felt that the United Methodist Church would add value and strength to the complaint. And so that's that's how we got involved. But, you know, that's the, the most recent story. I mean, public education has been important to United Methodists since our beginning. And John Wesley advocated for the education of children, particularly the children who could not afford to go to the private schools, because back then it was really private schools. There weren't, there wasn't private, or there wasn't public education, and so uh, it was really the church and the early Sunday school movement that set up education for children, particularly those children um, that that couldn't afford to go to school, and so public education has always been important to us, but. 
what today especially, what we recognize is that public education is not just about math and reading and language arts, um, history, but it's also about socialization. Yes. And how do we uh, integrate? How do we communicate? How do we connect in an ever more diverse society? And so, um, you know, this is this is who we are, and this is what we are about today. And so, this is something that um, we feel very privileged and honored to be a part of. Could you speak a little bit into the decision making process that move forward here? So, what what agencies were involved? What voices? And what were some of the conversations that happened at GNJ? Sure. So, uh, after uh, Justice Stein and I talked about that and the possibility. My next call was to our conference chancellor, our lawyer, and uh, talked through with her what some of this meant and the ramifications. And then I began to talk to some of the conference leaders, uh, our district superintendents, uh, some of our lead staff, also uh, our council on finance and administration, um, our connectional table. And as we began to talk about this, more and more people began to say, this is the right thing to do. And, and you know what? We all know within the United Methodist Church today, there are issues that are challenging us and that we are really trying to define what is our way forward. And in these conversations, one person asked me, so in the midst of the United Methodist Church trying to understand its way forward, why would we get involved with something like this that might also create controversy? You know, and I said, I said mission and justice can't wait for the right time. Mm. Mission and justice, um, it, it, you know, needs to be done when it's happening, not waiting for some opportune time. And so uh, the person who asked that question said, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's exactly what I believe, that we as the United Methodist Church can't wait for the opportune time for us to get involved in things that are urgent and important now. And so there's just been this groundswell. And so uh, the United Methodist Women's Executive Committee heard about it, and they wanted to be a part of it. Um, our Board of Church and Society wanted to be a part of it. Our uh, Board of, uh, or our Commission on Religion and Race, our Board of Trustees, the Cabinet, um, on and on, people, as they began to hear about it, they all wanted to be a part of this. They wanted our annual conference to sign on and uh, help move this forward. Thank you, Bishop. Justice Stein, um, you you already um, got towards an answer uh, to this question, but I'm going to ask it in a more in a more direct way. What what are the the tangible statistical benefits from integrating schools? And I'm particularly interested in are there is there any sort of negative impact on these uh, socioeconomically rich, predominantly white schools? You know, the research says no. The research will tell us that the benefits are that poor black and Latino children who attend diverse schools uh, tend to do better on standardized tests. They tend to attend and graduate high school and college with more frequency. So it's very clear to me that it's possible educationally to design schools in a way that accommodate the needs of all children. And I think that the ultimate benefit for children of all races and backgrounds is going to be extremely high if we go to a system of diverse schools. So follow-up question to this, uh, Justice Stein. Um, 
there's clearly a, a precedent for for desegregating schools, right? Other cities and states have attempted this continuously since since Brown v. Board of Education. So, what do you think a desegregated school system looks like in New Jersey? We don't we don't advocate forced busing. Uh, we think busing is going to be an essential mm. element of it. Uh, let me let me tell you what they're doing in Hartford because it might give you an example, but they're are more options than what Hartford has selected. Hartford has created 39 magnet schools, 19 in the city of Hartford, 20 in the inner ring suburbs of Hartford. And about 7,500 public school students from Hartford are attending those magnet schools, both in the city and in the suburbs. And we visited those schools when we visited the schools in the city, there was a music and art and drama and theater magnet school that had half its children coming to Hartford from the suburban communities and half the children coming from the city. And we interviewed the children and they could not have been happier. And I remember one teenage girl whom I asked directly where do you live? And she told me, and I said, well, how long is your bus ride? And she said about 45 minutes each way. And I said, why would you get on a bus for 45 minutes to leave your hometown and come to this school? And she said to me, Justice Stein, this is a wonderful school. I couldn't get this kind of an education in my town. And besides that, everybody in my town is white. And in this school, I have a chance to experience school with a diverse group of students. And we saw young children from Hartford bust to those schools, all voluntary. That is, their parents put their children into a lottery. The children were selected. We saw kids get out of the bus that were in car seats. They were so young. And we visited the classrooms and saw the wonderful interaction of those children, black, white, Latino, Asian, sitting together at a table, totally unconscious of the differences in their backgrounds. And that's what I believe that a diverse school system in New Jersey will look like 10 years from now. Uh, We have a statute in New Jersey that encourages consolidation of K to eight and nine to 12 districts into K-12 districts, because educationally the thought is that a K-12 district is far superior to a district that's just K-8 or 9-12. And that statute that authorizes consolidation of those districts certainly could be used to remediate segregation. So there are lots of mechanisms. There are lots of people in the country that know this subject better than I do. We've tried to get Uh, access to their knowledge. Uh, But I'm confident that once the state undertakes to fix the system it has, we can do it. We can make New Jersey's school system diverse and educationally beneficial for all children. Thank you, Justice. Uh, Bishop Scholl, how will the desegregation of schools impact our local churches and our faith communities here in New Jersey? One of the things that I see as a real possibility is the kids in our communities that attend more uh, integrated schools, that will also impact our congregations. 
And, you know, one of the great things is, is that uh, uh, students are often inquisitive. And so if they're going to an integrated school but worshiping in a segregated church, you know, they can begin to ask questions. Why is my congregation not like the school that I go to? Right, so right. I can really see that this is uh, uh, going to be something that will help us as the church um, continue to integrate our congregations. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Justice Sign, now that a lawsuit has been filed, what are the next steps? And Bishop, uh, what are the next steps for the church? So that's a great question. You, 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 I think everybody needs to understand the reason for the lawsuit is that this is a difficult issue for the state legislature and governor to resolve on their own. It's not that they can't do it. But I think it would be very helpful for them to have the benefit of a court order telling them this has to be done. Once the litigation is done, and that could take as much as two to three years, there will be a, an order, a remediation order, an, an order determining, we hope, that the state no longer can organize its school systems in a segregated way, and ordering the state and its commissioner of education and the state board of education to adopt and implement a remediation plan. And in that process, we hope our coalition will be consulted and will help the state to design a remediation plan that can work and work effectively. The legislature will have to appropriate funding the magnet schools in Hartford are not all new construction. Many of them were renovated from existing buildings, but certainly there's a cost involved in creating magnet schools. There's a cost involved in transporting children, and there's a lot of work to do to restructure our school system. So we're talking about a process that will take years. One of the things I'm going to try to make sure of, though, is that we keep a reasonable amount of pressure on because this is not the kind of a problem uh, that cures itself. It requires care and attention and persistence and pressure. And we're going to be the source of that pressure to make sure this gets done. For us, uh, the United Methodist Church, there are a number of things we're going to do. Uh, one is that we're going to encourage people to learn more and better understand what the issues are and also about the remedies and why these remedies are important. So the first uh, important piece for us is knowledge and understanding. And I think as more and more people understand, have the knowledge of what's happening, and also the, the potential remedies, more and more people will really embrace this. Um, in addition to learning and understanding, we're going to uh, want our congregations to have conversation within their, within their congregation. And so we're preparing uh, small group studies and conversations for congregations oh, uh, that will be available so that uh, small group leaders can begin to lead their congregations in, in these uh, conversations. And then we also want our, uh, our church people to be active in their communities and talking with people in their community about why this is important mm. and helping the community better understand their neighbors, the people that they work with. Um, so it's, it's also taking the information out. Then we want to be good advocates uh, for the remedies, for the, the lawsuit, 
And so uh, we want people to, uh, number one, talk to their elected leaders about why the United Methodist Church is involved in this and what we really hope for from our elected leaders and how they can also be supportive in this process. We want uh, our church people to follow this case and uh, continue to learn what is happening as the case goes along, and again, how their church can be active and involved. So really, it's about uh, learning and understanding, uh, building conversations uh, through guided conversation processes in our churches, extending those conversations out into the community, and being good advocates um, with their neighbors, their coworkers, with their elected leaders about why this is so important. What's going to happen at annual conference? Could you just kind of clarify that, too, before we go into that last question? What will happen at annual conference? So at our annual conference session, uh, we'll ratify um, our being a part of this lawsuit. And so we have legislation that is very specific um, that will come to the annual conference. One of the things I'm really proud about is, as we talked about this legislation, you, our process, for those who are United Methodists, understand that actually legislation for an annual conference session has to be submitted um, way back in February. And then uh, we take legislation as it, as it pretty much comes in. So this is a, a legislation that's coming in later. Our um, committee that looks at uh, the agenda has decided not only to add this piece of legislation to our agenda, but has indicated that it needs to be the first piece that we look at before we look at any other legislation, that this is just that important for us as a church. And so this will be the first legis piece of legislation that we look at on Monday morning. And I couldn't be prouder of our people who recognize how important this is and that this needs to be the first thing we do. Wonderful. Thank you, Bishop, for clarifying that. Bishop, right now, where, where can someone find more information about, about these issues? People can go to our webpage where we have uh, sections set up that will include this podcast. Uh, we'll include also um, the legislation of annual conference. It'll include information about integration, uh, an editorial that I wrote, and it will be a site that continues to build. So people can go to gnjumc.org. And then they'll see uh, where we have information about uh, working toward integration here in New Jersey. Justice Stein? We're going to activate our website uh, as of May 17th. And the uh, name of our website is inclusiveschoolsnj.org. But I'm going to talk to the people that have created that website. And I'm also going to talk to two of our experts who are women who have written widely in this field, put on the website a bibliography of the literature. And that includes the studies that demonstrate the benefits of uh, diverse schools. I suspect that when this lawsuit is filed, there'll be some extensive press and media coverage that people can read. Uh, but it isn't hard to become knowledgeable about this subject, to understand what other communities like Louisville, Kentucky, one of the best examples of a successful diversification program. The children in Louisville were bust, and there was a very hostile community reaction. But over the past 20 or 25 years, the citizens of Louisville have come together and recognized the enormous benefit 
of a diversified school system. And Louisville today is a, uh, a glowing example of how a community exposed to diversified schools has come to embrace it and believe that it's right for them. So we'll do our best to make it easy to learn. We'll be sure to uh, include both websites, uh, gnjumc.org and inclusiveschoolsng.org in the show notes as well for yeah. those who are looking. And and I'll add I'll add two two things that have been helpful for me as well. There's a website njspotlight.com uh, on on May 3rd of this year they they put out an interactive map that shows you just how segregated New Jersey schools are uh, and then uh, for a narrative perspective on this there's actually an NPR program called This American Life and they released a two-part episode I think July of 2016 that talked about uh, desegregation from the perspective of, of parents in a district and students and, and, and what the effects of desegregation were. Uh, and those, those two pieces have been pretty powerful for me. Wonderful. Thank you again, Justice Stein and Bishop Scholl, for being on the podcast. Before we let you go, we have one question that we ask all our guests. So we are the Uncovered Dish podcast um, that is referencing the covered dish dinners uh, we as United Methodists love to eat. So for our last question, uh, Bishop Scholl, maybe you can go first and then Justice Stein. Uh, If you can have one dish for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, no variations, what would that be? One dish be. Oh, it's pretty easy for me. It's ice cream. Ice. <laughs> but what kind of ice? Cream? What kind of flavor though? Oh, yeah. uh, uh, cherry vanilla. Cherry vanilla ice Definitely. cream. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Def- uh, absolutely. Ooh, ooh. I'm lactose intolerant a little bit, so <laughs> that sounds both wonderful and terrible at the same time. Uh, Justice Stein, what about you? I can't imagine having the same dish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, you know, I'm torn when I answer between thinking of something that appeals to me and, (laughs) on the other hand, I'm worried about my other half, which is a fitness freak and somebody who's (laughs) conscious about every calorie he consumes and exercises daily. You're overthinking uh, this. I mean, (laughs) I I think what I'm going to do is give you you two answers. One for my taste buds, I suppose... uh, Pizza would probably be fine. Uh, spaghetti and meatballs, something like that. And from the standpoint of my uh, fitness self, I'd have an egg white omelet with spinach, mushrooms, and tomatoes uh, <laughs> with uh, maybe um, a little ketchup on the side. How about that? Justice Stein, we'll have to go to dinner together. That way we can balance each other out. That's right. A little bit of uh, egg white, some pizza, and then uh, some ice cream afterwards. Uh, Thank you again, Justice Stein and Bishop Scholl, for being on the podcast. Again, if you want more information, you could go to our webpage at gnjumc.org or inclusiveschoolsnj.org. Once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We hope to talk to you soon. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be a part of it. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to have been here.